pray together. Father, the sea, the world is raging around us, and yet we come to you today knowing that your spirit can fix our eyes on Jesus Christ today. He's our hope, he's our stay, and we need him now. So would you do this now, through your word, by your spirit, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We certainly don't like thinking about death. It just seems so grim and morbid. And yet, every so often, we really do need to dwell on it. Because there's nothing like death to give us perspective on our lives here on earth. And we so often lack perspective, a healthy perspective on life. We get so extremely nearsighted. We get engrossed with the excitement or the stress or the seeming novelty of now. And at times, I think it's like, it's like the Bible wants to rip the blinders off our eyes and give us a dose of realism. And this is perhaps nowhere truer than in the book of Ecclesiastes, I think one of the main reasons the book of Ecclesiastes is in our Bibles is to refocus us on death and on our ends. I think because when we keep our death in view, it radically affects our perspective on life now. When we aren't so fixated on the here and now, it actually helps us live better here and now. I invite you to see this with me today in Ecclesiastes 7. So if you'd turn there with me now, Ecclesiastes 7. And in this chapter, Solomon begins bombarding us with proverbs, classic proverbial sayings. Sometimes these kinds of sayings may seem disjointed or disconnected, but there are common threads to them. And one such key thread today is death in this chapter. Another repeated theme is the word better, better. He is trying to teach us wisdom for a better life, or you could say for the good life. We all want our lives to be good here on earth, improved, better than they are now. But how God's word suggests we can get there is so surprising. Adam took us through chapters 5 and 6 last week where we saw how frustratingly limited wealth is. How even when God gives us great prosperity, we may not be content to enjoy it. Everything we have or don't have, our lot in life, is heaven sent to us. And we ought to to be ready to receive it from the Lord as such, with contentment. But chapter 6 ended pretty negatively, with another good image, actually, for vanity, a shadow. 
says in verse 12 of chapter 6, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And I think back to the summer, on a hot day when the sun is just beating down on you. Okay, sorry for bringing up contentment and then bringing that up. <laughs> But maybe on that hot day, you sought shade under the shadow of a tree or a canopy of some kind. But as the sun moves through the sky, the cool of your shade moves as well. The shadow passes by. You can move yourself, or you can move the object that's casting the shadow, but you cannot, there's no way to, to grab onto the shadow itself and to move it. It's ungraspable, it's elusive, it's short-lived until it disappears. Or in a word, it's vanity. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. So in a world where wealth is fleeting and our work can seem so vain, what's valuable? What can we grasp onto which is good or helpful for life here on earth? Well, for one, having a good reputation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, you may not show off or covet many precious ointments today, unless you're into essential oils. <laughs> but, but this is talking about things like expensive perfumes, incenses, even medicines, which in that day were exquisite luxuries. It's a sign of wealth, even royalty. But what was more valuable than owning expensive luxuries? Owning a good name. A good reputation. If you think a good reputation of integrity and honesty and kindness and dependability takes years to build. And as it happens, just moments to destroy. It's something that's precious to guard. Therefore, one lesson could be don't sacrifice your reputation in pursuit of wealth. If you make bank, but with a bankrupt reputation, it won't be worth it in the end. That's simple enough, right? It's a, it's a pleasing, a pleasant proverb. But nothing prepares us for the second half of verse 1, which hits us like a coffin upside the head. A good name is better than precious ointment. And like that, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Whoa! Where did that come from? And how are these lines related to each other? Like maybe Solomon was thinking of someone who died with either a good or bad reputation. Death gives us that opportunity to, to really reflect on someone's reputation and legacy. But Wow! Is that actually true? It, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. How? 
Like, we dread death. We fear death. We don't look forward to, to funerals or burials at all. We believe death is actually a result of the curse, a result of our fall into sin. So clearly, that's a bad thing, right? Meanwhile, our days of birth are almost always moments of celebration. We greatly anticipate babies being born. We rejoice when they arrive. Then every year, we re-celebrate again on our birthdays. Picture someone just wiping their tears away at a funeral or a graveside, and then picture someone with tears of joy, beaming, holding their newborn. Like, How in the world is the day of death better than the day of birth? I think verse 2 gives us the start of an answer. It says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The living will lay it to heart. In other words, death teaches us something. Something we should take to heart. Something that we don't learn nearly as well from birth. Like there's a, a kind of wisdom that is only obtained by staring into the reality of our deaths. Think of Psalm 90, verse 12, which says, so, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teaches us wisdom. See, in our upside-down world, shattered by death, wisdom is found in some unexpected places. And it teaches us some unconventional, surprising things, like this for a first example. That life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of sorrow. In the face of death, life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of sorrow. Like it says here, death is your end. Death is my end. It's the end of all mankind unless Christ comes back first. And it is truly good for us to contemplate this truth. Because it says, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. As David Gibson says, living a good life means preparing to die a good death. Let's go back to that picture, though, in verse 1 of birth and death dates. What does death teach us that birth doesn't? Well, when a, when a new baby is born, what do we know about that little person? Not much, right? We know their measurements. We can see some physical characteristics. Maybe say something like, oh, she looks so much like her mom. But when someone grows old, and then dies. Remember, they were once that unknown baby. What can we say about someone on the occasion of their death? All kinds of things, right? We can say, he was a man of character. She was a woman of faith. He loved the Lord. She loved life, lived it to the fullest. He was so generous. She was so kind. 
Or on the other hand, they might have left a legacy of greed or selfishness or abuse, and death brings that to the forefront as well. Gibson explains that the day of death is better than the day of birth, not because death is better than life. It's not, but because a coffin is a better preacher than a cradle. When life ends, or it's about to end, absolutely everything else comes into focus. The things that don't really matter, but which we gave so much time to, now seem so empty and pointless. The lives we touched, the generosity we showed, and the love we gave or received now mean so much more. And therefore, this is also surprisingly true, that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Or verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now there's a contrast here between wisdom and folly, between realism and escapism. Like the wise are willing to mourn, the while fools pursue mirth, really to escape. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So he's, Solomon's contrasting these two houses, the, the house of mourning, you could say funeral homes, and the house of Feasting or mirth, picture parties and banquet halls, bars, clubs. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with feasting or partying or celebrating. Think of all the times that Solomon's already said, eat, drink, enjoy your toil. Like it's one thing to have good times. It's another thing to only think about having good times to try to, to flee reality, to try to numb the pain, to try to avoid problems, or just to laugh it all away. And it's better. It's better for us to spend our time at funerals than at feasts. In fact, our feasts will mean so much more when we're conscious that they're going to expire. Right? We will treat our joyful moments as more the precious commodity that they are. Now, living like this doesn't make us morbid. It makes us people of depth and substance. It, it really makes, intriguingly, it makes us more alive, more fully engaged with the world around us more appreciative of each day as we recognize it as the gift that it is. Essentially, the wisdom that sorrow brings helps us value what is really vital in life. Like when we're sitting at a, a funeral home, staring at a casket, we aren't carelessly gleeful there. We're contemplatively thoughtful. The facts are staring us straight in the face, plain as day. We stop and we think, or at least we ought to think, that will be me one day. 
And if that's going to be me, dead in a box, then what will my life have amounted to? What will be said about me? And thus, how then should I be living now to lead to that? What goals need reshaped? What attitudes need changed? What blessings need shared? Like you get far more wisdom from that sobering sorrow than from dancing the night away. If at the funeral we instead think, oh, this is unbearable. Can't wait to get out of here. I got to go drown out my discomfort at a, at a pub or on a phone or playing a game. Then Ecclesiastes would tell us, you're a fool. That's not the true good life. That's escapism. It's intentionally deluding yourself, blinding yourself. It's, it's living in denial. Shrug it off, and one day you'll be in for a terrible shock. So let sorrow be your teacher. Sorrow is better than laughter. Now, laughter can be a good thing, but it's not a good escape. And sorrow is better for us in that it's more helpful to us, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. That isn't only saying that sorrow can be replaced with joy. Like the psalm says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. It's saying that, that sorrow itself can actually be a preparation for true joy. It prepares us for it. Like we see in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Oh, how hard we try to resist crying and lamenting. Try to hold back the tears. And yet our tears can be so good for us. Dane Ortland talks about this. It says, our tears do not hinder growth. Our tears accelerate and deepen growth. That isn't always true, of course. We can let our tears sour us rather than sweeten us. But tears often simply reflect the removal of distraction. We are finally getting in touch with reality and with ourselves. We see more who we really are in all our vileness. We see more deeply who Jesus Christ is in all his tenderness. Do you not find, as you reflect back on your life, that there were times when sitting alone in your tears, you experienced a sublime depth of joy, of reality with God, that no stand-up comedian could give you? He goes on to say that if, if someone walked in on you in that moment, they would assume that you're in distress. <clears throat> Excuse me. We might be tempted to, to sweep away the awkwardness, maybe with a quick joke. But that would just make our own welling joy dissipate too. So he concludes that a weeping exterior can often adorn quiet, deep, solid joy.
excuse me, got a frog in my throat. But isn't it so neat that, that God can transform and redeem an evidence of our fallenness, which is sorrow, into something that leads to goodness, gladness, and glory. Of course, one day, rest assured that God's going to wipe away every tear for good. But until then, believe it or not, life is better with tears. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. And the, the counterintuitive wisdom continues in verse 5. Look, it says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. There's a contrast here between two things that we can hear. We can hear a wise friend rebuke us, or we can hear all of the today's top hits on Spotify from the biggest artists. And what's surprisingly better for us? Not what's more enjoyable. What's better? Rebukes, provided we listen to them and heed them. Why? Well, the song of fools won't last long at all. Look at verse 6. It says, For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Maybe you've never thrown thorns into a fire before. I don't know if I have. But you can probably imagine how quickly such small, thin things would burn up. Throw them in, snap, crackle, pop, and they all shrivel away into ash and smoke. Oh, they, they crackle away, but it's just lots of noise. No useful heat. Like, would thorns actually cook whatever's in the pot? No. They're near useless. And so it's a, it's a vivid picture, again, of vanity. And such is the escapist, frivolous laughter and songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Let's recognize the, the superficiality of what we call entertainment in our world. And it's so empty and fleeting and useless, and yet we so often spend our lives pursuing it. In contrast, correction can change your life forever. You could be far off, better off for it. So don't be quick to reject it or get defensive if it comes from someone wise. Like you want the good life, then lean into constructive criticism. Seek it out even. Like ask someone you trust where they think you could be growing and take what they say to heart. Now, while seeking this kind of wisdom is good, wisdom still has its limits. 
Even if you're wise, it doesn't automatically protect you from fallenness. And that's what we see in verse 7, which warns us that even the wise are vulnerable to oppression. They're susceptible, susceptible to corruption. It says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. No matter how wise you are or think you are, don't ever see yourself as infallible or let yourself be bought. After all, perspective. What good will wealth be to you once you're in a coffin or an urn? Life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of sorrow. And the second point we see here is that life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of patience. With the wisdom of patience. I'd add that there are several aspects to this patience. There's humility, self-control, and contentment. Look with me in verse 8. It says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So the end is better than the beginning, broadens our theme, right? The end of a life is better than its beginning, but this isn't just true with birth and death. Finishing is better than starting in general. And that takes patience. The message paraphrases verse 8 as sticking to it is better than standing out. Sticking to it is better than standing out. But this is not what our culture tells us, right? It says that standing out is essential to your well-being. You have to stand out. You need to to show the world who you really are. Wear it loud, wear it proud. And this verse tells us that an internal patience actually helps us fight against the pride that's in our hearts. It instills humility in us. We don't need to be somebody super special right now if we can wait on the Lord. Besides, we're already special in his sight. Next, you see the the patience of self-control in verse 9. It says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. In other words, if anger has taken up residence in your heart, that labels you as a fool again. Wisdom tells us to be slow to anger. Whatever strategies we have to use to do so. Now, to be clear, the initial impulse we feel of anger isn't bad. It just alerts us to something being wrong around us, like a a check engine light on our dashboard. But anger, while it helps us identify a problem, it's a terrible solution to our problems. Because our sin just tends to muck things up. So be careful. Then verse 10, say not, why were these former days, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This basically tells us don't pine for the past or the good old days. Be content with your now. There's plenty of good to thank the Lord for now. Besides, in a fallen world, under the sun, have there ever actually been any good old days? 
Oh, yeah, back in Eden. And end of list. Right? Every era has its own evils. We tend to romanticize the past, to see it with some golden haze around it. Don't buy it. It never was the good life we imagine it to be. Nostalgia can be fun, but it's overrated. And it's really another form of escapism. Longing for the past instead of working with the present or hoping in the future. Plus, if we're constantly looking backward, looking to the past, thinking that it was far superior to now, then we'll often miss God's presence and activity in the present now. Let's keep moving. Verse 11. It says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So wisdom and wealth each offer some advantages in life, and if you have both, you're even better off. Pretty simple. But if you have only one, wisdom is better. It's the better choice. Because only wisdom can potentially save your life. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And then comes what I think is the heart of this whole chapter in verses 13 and 14. Look at them with me. Verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So we can't change God's work, redo it, or do a better job of it than he does. Therefore, we should be content with our current crookedness. And we go, but wait! Why would God make anything crooked? Valid question. Because that's not how he originally made anything. His whole creation was good. It was very good. Our world was not bent and broken. We were not bent and broken. And yet, now we are. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually crooked. Like, isn't there something about you, as you are right now, that, that constantly frustrates you? let alone other people around you. Just, you're frustrating to you. A body part that doesn't work well, a learning disability, mental disorder, an emotional weakness, a sin, a habitual sin that haunts you. When we fell into sin, God justly placed our world under a curse of futility. You could say vanity, which means that even God's creations, sadly, come out crooked for now. It's not how things were meant to be, not how things eventually will be, but it is how things are. It's our reality. Yet God still works with our brokenness, healing it, 
correcting it, redeeming it, restoring it. And wisdom tells us, consider God and his ways. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? He's sovereign. He can make straight what is crooked. He can reverse the curse, but we can't. And that's the point. Like We need to embrace who we are right now as finite human creatures. Even our wisdom can't fix everything about our twisted world. And this is a matter of humility. And I think it's also, again, a matter of patience. Why patience? Because when we think this way, we become content with our times, with where we're living right now. As verse 14 encourages us to do, it says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. Where do you find yourself today? What day are you in? Like Adam showed us last week, it's not wrong to enjoy prosperity in proper ways. If God has blessed you with abundant gifts, enjoy them and praise him. However, when those blessings are withheld from you, realize that this too comes from God. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. He has his purposes for us wherever he has us. And one of these purposes, surprisingly, it's to keep life unpredictable for us. Did you see that? It says, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Think about it. If we could predict or know our futures, would we need faith? Would we need hope? For that matter... If we knew how everything was going to go, would we need God? Again, we're human. We are very limited by design. God made good days and bad days for us so that we don't take anything for granted. <laughs> and it would be wise for you to accept this. And then, be patient until he changes your season. Because the good news is, a crooked world, crooked lives, aren't the end of the story. And better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Now the next few verses here can be quite confusing to us. No one's positive what they mean, it seems. But here's my best guess at the point, based on my study of them, that life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of balance. 
In a vain world which is full of extremes, life is better with the wisdom of balance. And in verse 15, Solomon recounts, In my vain life I have seen everything, seen it all. Sadly, that included plenty of injustice and unfairness. It says, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You ever feel that frustration? Maybe when watching news feeds today? I know I do. It's totally legitimate for us to feel the angst of that, to, to recoil against injustice. And yet when we do, we again lack perspective. The long-term perspective of, of eternity, that is. In reality, this life is as good as it will ever get for the wicked. And right now will be the closest thing to hell that God's people will ever feel. I'm going to talk about more of that in the next passage. But here in Ecclesiastes right now, Solomon's conclusion is rather perplexing. Look at verse 16. It says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, when I first read those verses, my initial reaction was, what? <laughs> like, that's in the Bible? Why would Solomon all of a sudden encourage moderation in righteousness and wisdom? Like, that seems to contradict all kinds of other scriptures, right? Like, when God says to be holy as I am holy. Verse 17, similar, like, don't be overly wicked. Well, Shouldn't we seek to not be wicked at all? If we just balance out between the good and the bad, don't go crazy in either direction, we'll be okay? Well, no. I don't believe that's at all what Solomon is suggesting here. I was discussing this passage with a pastor friend of mine, and, and as we talked through it, he helped me make sense of it. But I think that, that Solomon is addressing the fact that this crooked life doesn't fit into our neat little boxes. Right? It's, we make up all kinds of cutesy Christian cliches and slogans to make sense of life, try to get a handle on it. Like, you're never more safe than when you're in the center of God's will. Or, God will never give you more than you can handle. But life under the sun is hardly ever that straightforward, is it? It's crooked. It's a, it's a muddy mess here. In our experience, injustice often reigns. Righteousness can sometimes seem to wreck our lives. Like, today's sermon is a four-point sermon on the surprising nature of the good life. But there is no simple four-step plan to guide you or to, to achieve the good life. Simplistic, legalistic plans, slogans simply don't work in our broken world. 
Therefore, yes, find balance, avoid extremes, but not because it's good to dabble in both sides, but because life under the sun doesn't run like a tidy little equation or cliche. And don't be overly righteous isn't really talking about good righteousness at all anyway, but rather a righteousness that we believe will straighten us out and keep us safe in life. It's a self-righteousness. Being righteous or good in our own eyes. Trusting in our own superior goodness. Instead of having the righteousness from God that comes through faith, which begins with us realizing how unrighteous we are on our own. Then there's don't be overly wicked or foolish, which seems like a no-brainer. But he's saying, don't be brazen or reckless. If you're living in this, don't be comfortable in your folly. Otherwise, you run the risk of ending your life prematurely. Why should you die before your time, he asks. And thus, the wisdom of balance comes into play. Verse 18 says, It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Other versions translate this as, Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. The way to avoid the folly of self-righteousness and the folly of reckless sin is to fear the Lord. My friend Josh pointed out a brilliant parallel here in the Jesus parable of the prodigal son. In that story, we see clear examples of being both overly wicked and overly righteous. The younger brother was a fool, demanding his inheritance early, only to waste it all, recklessly wicked. Like if it wasn't for the extravagant love of his father, he would have ruined his life for good. Meanwhile, the older brother sitting at home thinking that he has earned his father's love with his upright, honorable living, he deserved celebrating, not his brother, But in reality, his self-righteousness was just as alienating and destructive as his brother's sins. And therefore, he too needed the grace of his father. If we fear God, we will realize our brokenness no matter who we are or how good we are. And we will come running to his feet, begging him for the mercy which he actually wants to give us. which puts us in the exact place I think Solomon wants us to end, on our knees. If there is one constant underlying heartbeat of this passage, I think it's actually humility. Wisdom is better than folly because wisdom makes us humble. Thus, life in our vain world is better with the wisdom of humility. Life in our vain, sinful world is better with the wisdom of humility. What I mean by humility is an accurate awareness of who we are in relation to God. 
an accurate awareness of who we are in relation to God. As we continue here, verse 19 sounds a hopeful note on the apparent strength of wisdom. It says, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. In other words, one wise person can outmatch or outwit ten powerful people. But then, verse 20 plops us right back into our seats. It says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So, Wisdom might make you strong, but it can't make you not a sinner. Can't do it. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Scholars believe that this is the only verse from Ecclesiastes that's clearly alluded to in the New Testament. It pops up in Romans 3.10, where Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. And he uses this truth as evidence that he's building for his argument. And his argument culminates with the verse you all know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all corrupted. We're all limited by sin. Not a single one of us is actually righteous on our own. Humility starts when we admit this to be true of us. We are not righteous We are sinners, and therefore, we desperately need a Savior. Thankfully, you know how that famous sentence in Romans 3 continues? We've all sinned, fallen short of God's glory, but we also can now be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how does God make straight what has been made crooked? Jesus is how. Jesus is how he does this. We must run to him, admit our sin, believe that that he died and rose again in our place, confess him as Lord, that he died in order to take our sin away and to give us his own perfect righteousness. Solomon may not have known who Jesus was, but he definitely exposes our need for him. And the rest of the chapter just continues to expose this need through other wisdom for life. Look at verse 21. It says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So like, don't eavesdrop, or you may hear things you don't want to hear. Besides, you know it would be hypocritical to take offense to other people's gossip or criticism of you because you've done it plenty of times yourself. That's the logic. Therefore, be humble. You you are a sinful failure, just like any other sinner you hear sinning. The next verses go into how unreachable true wisdom can sometimes seem to us sinners. Even for someone like Solomon, with his superior intellect, 
Verse 23 says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. But he's saying wisdom's far off, as if it were in a faraway country that he can't travel to. And it was deep, very deep, as if it's at the bottom of the sea where he can't swim. Solomon's search is extensive. And yet he felt he's coming up empty. His search is a dismal failure, he feels. But I think the point we need to take away is, again, the limits of our knowledge. The limits of our wisdom. We aren't God. We can't know it all. And humility is willing to say, I don't know. But then Solomon does say he made one discovery. In verse 26, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but one woman among all these I have not found. Now, before you go and take offense and label Solomon as some sexist, misogynist, I don't believe he's talking about a literal woman in verse 26 or womankind in verse 28. If you've read the book of Proverbs before, remember how Solomon personifies both wisdom and folly as women who are calling out, trying to get people to follow them? In Proverbs 9, he says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. And those who are seduced by her are unaware that they'll end up dead. So when he says here, I found a woman very seductive, yet more bitter than death, I believe he's talking about the lady folly. And if we want the good life of pleasing God, we must escape folly's snares. As it says in verse 26, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. In verse 28, Solomon's conclusion can't be that one rare man is righteous, but that no women are, unless he's talking about Jesus. He's already said, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Gender's not the point. Pervasive depravity is the point. And verse 29 makes this clear. Last verse of the chapter, says, See, this alone I found, that God made man, that is mankind or humanity, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. See, the problem in our world is not with God, who makes things crooked for now. The problem in our world is not just with the devil, even though he does try to destroy us. The problem in our world is not just the world, with its corrupt systems and cultures. 
the main problem in our world is us. Like, we're the ones who made a mess of things. God made us upright, righteous, and good. We're the ones that originally bent us out of shape. And we have no one to blame but ourselves for heading down an increasingly downward path. We're to blame. We're the problem. But the good news is, we don't have to be the solution. Which is fantastic. Because we're too ensnared in our sin to solve anything anyway. We need our maker to make things right. And praise the Lord that he does. When he does, and we receive Jesus, it shouldn't make us proud, but humble us even more. That God himself would love us undeserving sinners to the extent that he does. Wow. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Do you sense the hope there? Our schemes may be our fault, but they're not our fate. Life will never be perfect here under the sun. Under the shadow of death until Christ comes. But life here will be better as we learn to humbly live under the Son of God, Christ Jesus. And his resurrection promises the joy of a better day. A better day. A day of true and lasting prosperity. And a day of eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, by your Spirit, fix our eyes on Jesus Christ right now. He's our only hope. May we run to him wherever we are, whether we are enjoying your blessings or feeling the lack of them, whether we're rejoicing or mourning or somewhere in between. We need you right now. So do this work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.